Season two of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Groovy, creators of three delicious alcohol-free drinks that are perfect for any social occasion. As you know by now, I love a nice, crisp, non-alcoholic beer, and Groovy do a hoppy, full-bodied IPA and a crisp and tangy Weiss beer. And for when you've got something to celebrate, like, for example, never waking up with a hangover, their zero-proof Prosecco is hands down the tastiest wine alternative I've tried. Groovy can be found at getgroovy.com. That's get G-R-U-V-I.com or in specialty markets throughout Colorado. And they'll also be serving refreshments at two events I have coming up in Denver in November 2019 that I'll share more about mid-episode. If you live elsewhere in the US, you can also get 20% off any online order with the code RUBY20. So welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast with me, Ruby Warrington. This week's episode features a conversation that has been waiting to happen for a long time. And my guest is Laura Willoughby, who's the founder of UK organization Club Soda, which is an on and offline community for anybody navigating a move away from the dominant drinking culture, wherever they fall on the spectrum of sobriety or sober curiosity. Yes, Laura's platform has the same name as the event series I started in New York in 2016. We clear up some of the confusion around that at the start of the episode. And actually, since we recorded this conversation, Biet Simkin and I have officially called time on our soda events. I'm personally focused on getting my sober curious message out there. And I have some events under that title coming up, which, like I said, I'll tell you a bit more about mid-episode. Meanwhile, Laura and I talk about her journey creating the Club Soda community, as well as her Mindful Drinking Festival, which happens twice a year in the UK, and how this has actually been an extension of her background in politics. She sees becoming a non-drinker as a majorly disruptive, rebellious act, and it was one that she says, for her, connected her back to the core values that led her into politics in the first place. It's a super inspiring interview with lots of practical tips for getting and staying sober, as well as for hosting your own sober meetups. So without further ado, this is Laura. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today to to converse about all things sober, sober curious, club soda, and everything in between. No problem at all. (laughs) We were saying it's so nice to be um, sitting in person, because as much as we've had interactions over the years, they've mainly been online. Yeah, they have. And a brief hello at a festival once upon a time. I didn't even get to see you at the last one. No. And you were there. I was was in and out and I was in a jet lag state and I was a (laughs) bit full from lunch and I wasn't really feeling that sociable so I just kind of poked my head in. Um, Laura, as I mentioned in the intro, is the founder of Club Soda in the UK. I have to say Club Soda in the UK because people know me as the founder of Club Soda in New York. One of those happy accidents. It must be a very British thing that we came up with that name or something. Well, it's really interesting because I guess I'd been doing the Club Soda NYC events for about a year before I discovered you guys and was sort of a bit devastated because I was like, oh, it's such a cool name. Can we both do this? And we had some words and were a bit like, no, I don't know if we can. But then we've sort of worked it out. Yeah, in in the (laughs) nicest way. I never want to be one of those people that go, we've got a trademark, so you must do a cease and desist because that doesn't sound very friendly to me. Um, But I'm not sure about you, but we had this um, at the end of 2014, if not slightly before, um, the summer of 2014, not long after I came up with the idea for wanting to do something like Club Soda, we, I got um, about six people into a room to brainstorm ideas and somebody came up with the idea for Club Soda because we wanted to feel like a club, a private members club where you felt very comfortable and nice to come to and didn't have any stigma attached around it. 
and um, Drew, my co-founder, came up with the name, and I wasn't sure about it. And then we all went and got a cup of coffee and a little bit of something to eat, and and it just sat there. And you know when something just sits there as a name, and you go, you know what? I think that's the right one. That's that feels <laughs> great actually. And so that was it. And and as a name, it's worked really well because it does invite that feeling. I I keep um, typing it though without the A at the end of soda, which creates a very different club. <laughs> I'm not sure if you do that. And some people call it Club Sober as well, which it isn't. But anyway, there's no such thing as a perfect name. There isn't. And you know, um, this is, uh, let's say officially now, we're not necessarily affiliated, but we may collaborate in the future. Who knows? Yeah, and I really enjoy collaborating on yeah. stuff because... Um, this space and supporting other people should be about bringing in all of the skills and all of the talents and not feeling that you have to own things and actually I enjoy collaborating on stuff and working with people so for me that's a really good way to do business if you see what I mean I completely agree and it's part of a new paradigm that's being ushered in like to go slightly on a different tangent but similarly when I launched my other podcast I have a platform called The Numinous and I wanted to call it The Numinous Podcast and something called The Numinous Podcast exists and has done for about four years and it's done by this woman who has just masses of integrity talking about really deep spiritual subjects and I just like I couldn't I could not email her and be like you have to stop it just felt like such an asshole and it felt like this really patriarchal kind of I have money I have that had the money to buy this trademark and so yeah. you no longer can use this word that exists in the public con- in, the, in the kind of general consciousness I claim ownership of this word it's just like that's not the world that we live in anymore and anyway the chances of trademarking club soda in the US are very very slight right (laughs) UK perfect but I don't think we're going to get it there in the US because it's such a general term anyway enough on names and terminology we're both obviously um, one of the reasons I'm really happy to sit down with you is because you have been a big inspiration to me in the sense that when I first started speaking openly about being sober curious and about even whether this world, this this space in between, you know, abstinence-based recovery from alcohol addiction and quote-unquote normal drinking even existed, was this even a thing? Seeing that you were talking about the same thing and that you had such a thriving community of people who were very much having that conversation was really inspiring to me to be like, yes, this is needed. Yes, we need more conversations like this and about this subject. So I really, I'm really happy to sit down and share some of your insights, share what your journey has been with our listeners today. Um, so I'd love, in fact, we're, we're sat here at the, the Stratford Lofts looking out over a beautiful, sunny London vista. Like, we can see so much of London from where we're sitting. And we're in the site that was um, redeveloped in 20, 2012 and, and leading up to the 2012 Olympics in London where the Olympic Park was built and you were sharing that there was some significance for you with the fact that we're here today talking about this today. Could you share a little bit about what that, what that was and how that kind of then um, kind of like leads into your club soda story? Yeah, so um, my background's politics. So I got elected um, in uh, local government when I was 23 in Islington. And Are you from London? London? I'm not from London originally, I'm from Somerset originally. But you know when you live somewhere such a short amount of time, which is what you do when you're a child, and I've been in London you know, like 23, 24 years now. Uh, I moved to London as soon as I graduated and I was already politically active and I wanted to stand for council. 
and I stood and we got control of the council not long after. I'm a, I'm a Liberal Democrat by background and still am. It's a very good day. Joe Vincent's just got elected. I'm very excited. Um, and I got elected and became cabinet member for communities, mm. which meant that I um, came in just after the, uh, just before the Olympic announcement. So I was part of the drawing up the Olympic bid in terms of getting other local authorities interested. I went around to lots of um, authorities that weren't so keen on the Olympics because it seemed like it was all East London to say, look guys, I think we should back this bid. It'd be brilliant for the city. Um, I was in Trafalgar Square when we heard the announcement. We got the bid. I was so excited. And I've always, you know, this was always a big project in my, in my political career. And uh, I got a job, actually, not long... Uh, well, I got... One of the reasons why my drinking escalated... I was always a very good drinker, never d- doubt that. I, I'm part of the Ladette generation, which I suspect you probably identify with as well. For me, equalities were standing in the bar with a pint at all occasions, you know, and making sure that I kept up with the boys. Let's just pause there for a second. A very good drinker, what do you mean by that? Well, I drank every other night. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was always the last to leave the party. I was... Um, there were some nights when I could stop, but as things went on, and I could tell you a bit more about that, then my ability to stop in the evening got worse and worse. But I was always the one there. Um, I think part of that comes with... You know, knowing very well early on that I wasn't going to have children, so you can carry on living that life where you're going out in the evening, you've got nothing to go back for. Politics is always about going for the drink after whatever you're doing in the pub. Mm. And I'm my father's daughter. Um, mm. He it, Alcohol killed him at the age of 56. And But, you know, we've been brought up in a very, you know, you go out in the evening, you have drinks and so on. Um, so I didn't drink every day. But when I ended up in a job that I wasn't enjoying then my drinking escalated because mm. I, um, that bit of me that where my identity is very much tied in with what I do for my job, it isn't tied up with a family or all of those other things, mm. um, I began to drink more and I was able to go out and do quite boozy lunches, for example. Mm-hmm. Because and that's it, just part of the culture of yeah. the kind of the field you were working in the field that I was working in and also because I was in a job where no one cared if I turned up which I know sounds amazing and I could have done so much with that time but actually it really eroded my feelings of self-worth and I didn't know what to do with myself and I tried Mm. to do some things in the role and you know it was a sinecure role nobody really wanted you know it was there to be seen to be there Mm. and that was actually quite difficult for me Mm. and so my drinking escalated because it didn't matter what time I turned up in the morning it didn't matter if I disappeared at lunchtime right. and and I guess um, I knew and I knew I was I knew I was self-harming through drinking which I guess a lot of people do which is that you've got something that's completely wrong and this is the substance that's right in front of you so let's go out and do some extreme sport drinking and see how far you can push this and you know what's going on in your mind yeah. and you know what's going on in your head and you know this is stupid and ridiculous and you're feeling terrible all the time and you wake up in the morning and you promise yourself that that you know you're not going to drink again um, and I wouldn't drink actually on a hangover that's one thing I didn't do which is mm. why I wasn't an everyday drinker Mm, mm, mm. Um, probably one of the excuses you'll give yeah. yourself it's for okay, like, I don't, I don't drink every day. I never do hair of the um, dog. Yeah, yeah and uh, but then when you felt good the day after that, then you know you I would pick it up again, and any and I would revel in those days when somehow I managed to stop early enough. Yeah. Oh, look, see, it's not all the time. Yeah, this day yeah, I managed I to stop after two drinks. And It's interesting what you say about the self-harming as well, because I think about that in a way as kind of 
creating a problem so that you've got a reason for the problem. It's like, my problem is the fact I'm really hungover. My problem is not the fact that I feel really lost in this job and yeah. I don't really know who I am. So you create a problem, like in a, you know, when we think about self-harm, I create physical pain so that there's a reason I'm feeling this pain rather than having to do a kind of like an inner inquiry about like, what's the actual source of this pain. Yes. You see what I mean? Yes, you're right. And I had known, you know, the day my dad died, I knew that I was going to, I was my father's daughter and I had to do something about it. Right. But it was, you know, another eight years before I did that. Mm. And it's a bit like when you're on a diet, you know, you know you're going to have to give up the cake soon. So in between now and then, you eat all the cake as if it's going out of fashion. There's never going to be any more cake in the world. <laughs> and you do that with alcohol as well. I knew from mm. 30 that I needed to change my drinking. And it's mm. like I then spent the next eight years drinking as much of it as possible because I knew it would have to go at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mix in with that you know all those issues around your the, the self-worth and mm. and doing that thing that I did which was I don't think I can get a new job unless I quit drinking but um of course that's a bit like saying I can't ever do anything unless I lose weight or buy new clothes until I lose weight that's not how it works and something else has to change for you and actually for me it was um pushing myself into pushing working to let me do a secondment that allowed me to change my drinking so that I could then go back to the job and and get out of it again really quickly so it took moving my job for me to change my drinking rather than the other way around interesting so I say to people there's not always a right way around to do this you 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 know that things will won't normally go logical but just do something that will create a change mm. So we were talking about the Olympics and you said that you, you had this job actually working on the Olympic site and you'd been three months sober by that point. So you had these kind of, these memories of being in this, driving around yeah, this so area and feeling like, just feeling like a superstar, like you you were on the, you know, on track for your own so yeah, gold so I, medal in I gave, your sobriety. Yeah, I gave up three months before the Olympics. Mm. What and was the catalyst? So um, my... Oh God, my my giving up story is is um, a catalogue. Have you told it a million times? No, I haven't. Okay. I'm very good at not telling Ooh. it. <laughs> so, um, basically, the day I decided to give up, I booked a course um, somewhere. One day, I thought that's it. I'm going to put a line in the sand, mm. and I decided that. And then that day, I was going to a party, which was my ex's party. Um, and there were friends there and I turned up to that party and I told two of my closest friends I'd booked a day to give up drinking the look of relief on their face was amazing I then proceeded to get drunk yay because that's what you do at a party and uh, my ex had put on this party just so he could invite a particular woman so that he could um, um, hopefully develop a relationship with her Mm. whereas me and her left in the taxi together that evening both completely drunk interesting and actually what happened was is we woke up the following morning and she said to me, you're a functioning alcoholic. And I went, why did you say that? And she went, well, I am too. And this is a woman in a really high-paid job, mm. like money that I could never even dream of earning. Mm. And um, she said to me, well, because I am too. And um, I said, funny you should say that because I've booked to do this course. And she went, oh, I did that course in January as well. Was it a quick drinking course? Yeah, and right. we both were. And it was like that serendipity. I'd just told all my mates wow. and I'd gone and we'd ended up together, you know, completely <laughs> drug, red wine on the bedroom wall. Oh, my God. <laughs> and basically we stuck together and she said, well, I'll give up with you. And wow. by accident, wow, that's such yeah, incredible by accident we created the right circumstances all the right behaviour change techniques you need for changing drinking. Set a day, focused a whole day on changing my drinking, came back very angry from the course because it was really terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but a new relationship creates a new environment and so together mm. you know you're excited about other things and mm. so it allows you to be distracted from what you're doing because you're looking forward to seeing that person in the mm. evening and sharing your, your and findings. sharing the findings and getting excited about what I was doing with the soda stream and some very exciting cordials <laughs> so so that um you know that that's like um and so I now talk about all those accidentally good behaviour change things I put in place by changing my environment, um, having a buddy, um, having a day where I absolutely focused on, on my drinking yeah. and came out with some confidence and commitment. And yeah. confidence and commitment are really important. Mm. And then I did what most people do, which is sleep a lot for the first three months. It's like, oh... I, I'm tired. I know what. Instead of drinking wine, I'll have a doze. Oh, how exciting is that? Apparently, that's what my body wanted. It wanted to sleep and drink water for three months. And so it was reaching for wine to... to oh, I well, drank to... when I was tired. I drank when I was hungry. I drank when I was thirsty. I drank when I was stressed. I drank when I was angry. You know, um, I had basically learned to drink for every single um, human need. Any Alcohol need, yeah. had fitted in there. That's so interesting. And I talk a lot about how our drinking is actually a signal, a signal of what is an unmet need often an unmet yeah. emotional need you know? yeah yeah uh, or even just food. physical need yeah yeah so all of those things and at the end of that three months which I always say to people is the time when you're most likely to feel the most tired even if you didn't drink a lot that's basically a withdrawal symptom the feeling tired and dehydrated and wanted to drink water but at the end of that three months I was volunteering in the Olympic Park mm-hmm. and I was getting here at 6am in the morning going, I'm, I'm somewhere at 6am in the morning. <laughs> how, is, how is that not bunting out for me? Because I think this is amazing. <laughs> and I'm feeling like I was an athlete. It was just the most amazing feeling in the mm. world. Mm. And, and I would occasionally cry on the bus on the way home thinking, I would have missed all of this if I was drinking because I still would not have mustered the energy to get out of bed in the morning. I'd have found an excuse and, and I would have missed all of this just seeing millions of happy people in this olympic park mm, mm. um and you know and being part of this london moment bit, yeah like if you're you know you've entered into politics in this country you obviously care deeply yeah, about and, this country and signing as many friends in through the press entrance as i could possibly <laughs> manage you have to see the olympic park they let me sign anyone in quick 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 roll 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 you can get here um that's what i was doing and yeah. it just felt amazing so um, it's a real high point for me and I've got pictures of me in my uh, Olympic uniform and I'm a lot thinner <laughs> than I was at that point but um, but it but it just really signalled that change in energy for me and then at six months it's like my brain came back mm. um, and I began to be able to engage with all the issues that I feel very passionate about mm. and I the most important article I think I've ever written on Club Soda was about how um, changing drinking reconnected me with my values mm. and who I thought I was when I was mm. in my early 20s mm. And for me, that's been the most important thing. That wasn't something... I, I began to doubt who I was. And I thought that I wasn't a people person, which I you know, always thought I was. That whilst all of the, the private school boys who do politics can debate like a well-trained you know, machine, what I was able to do was to go into people's home on estates and be able to talk to them and understand what was going on and be able to translate that back into policy. Mm. And I began to doubt that because mm. holding a conversation with someone when you're hungover is the most difficult thing in the world. And I began to think I wasn't a people person. I just wanted to go home and crawl under a duvet and, and basically, you know, um, be hungover most of the time. Well, I think empathising with people when you're hungover is so hard because yeah. you're so kind of like cocooned in this like this blanket of your own misery 
but yeah. you can't actually well you've already shut down your capacity to like feel anything anyway yeah. and so pretend, like a great conversation having a connection requires empathy and requires yeah. being able to actually feel what the other person's experiencing so how can yeah. we do that when we're drunk or when we're hungover actually yeah and one of the things that excited me really early on was my tiny interactions with people every day because I always talk to people on the tube or catch somebody's eye and <laughs> and roll my eyes if something funny's happened on the tube and talk to people at, in shops and it's um I always describe even my first 18 months of being alcohol free as like a, a hundred little epiphanies mm. and I would I would catch myself having an interaction with a person realizing that's something I hadn't had for years and it ha- and how it made me feel and it energizes me and all of that sort of mm. stuff and so I spent a lot of time doing that and then on top of that builds um what I would call living life in high definition which is feeling your emotions blocking out since you were 14 because you'd yes. only learned to deal with emotions by using alcohol exactly so yes. and I'm sure that well anyone who's getting sober curious is familiar with some of these stages maybe they're not quite at the at that stage of the feeling all of the feelings yet it can come back yeah. to people in different stages can't it yeah I'd love to hear a little bit more um about your your decision to quit drinking did you go to AA did you attend any meetings did you investigate that route what happened no, that, for I, me, that was obviously like that was the that's well for me, but for many people, that's kind of like the obvious route. If you think you have a drinking problem and you need to quit, you go to AA. That's well, what we do. Um, I had been somebody who had commissioned the drug and alcohol services in local authorities, so I actually did phone up um, a drug and alcohol service mm. and decided I wouldn't go because a it would be full of, potentially full of people who are my constituents. Mm. And B, um, like drug and alcohol services are, are open only during the day. Although admittedly that wasn't a problem because no one cared if I turned up for work. But even so, <laughs> um, but I did call them and I wasn't too enthused. And mm. I um, and I would never have gone to AA. I, you know, the, the knowledge that that was a religious route um, and I even had a partial bit of religion about it. And I did go to, to some AA meetings after I gave up drinking when mm. I was thinking about what would be different about club soda. Mm. And I have to say it's still not the route for me. It's got a very um, particular identity. And that's really important, actually, because our ident- our I- when you change your drinking, you are changing a huge part of your identity. Because I was always, Laura would go out for a load of drinks and la 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 la. It was, it was actually very crucial to who I felt I was. And, and I always thought I was funnier and more exciting because I was drinking as well. So I add all that in. Um, it was a big part of my identity. And actually, when I first launched Club Soda, we went through and did a snapshot of all the people who are following Dry January. And it was some ridiculous number of a third of the people following Dry January on Twitter um, had in their Facebook profile either a picture of themselves with alcohol or uh, in their description it said, wine lover, beer lover. And you have to say that when you're already identifying on social media by the type of drink that you like... You, you can see how hard it is to change that. Yes. I didn't want my new identity to be alcoholic. It's not got the same connotations in the UK as it has in the States anyway. And it wasn't an identity I was willing... It felt like a negative identity, and I wanted to claim the new me, not to stick myself with a label that suggests that I'm suffering from a disease. It's a disease-based model. Mm. It's also a 70-year-old model. Mm. Um, and... Um, 
didn't feel very modern or um, conducive to me. And it's, um, but I can see how the fact that every meeting is exactly the same wherever you go in the world um, has a sense of ceremony about it in the way that it works, works for some people. Yeah. But it definitely wasn't where I wanted to go. I got a tax rebate and thought I would spend it on something to do with me. And I went to Nottingham and did a one-day course and then was so furious with it because there were dependent drinkers in the room and they told them to go away and now not drink that I felt that there had to be something better and more ethical that felt a bit more like a diet club, like Weight Watchers or Slimming World, mm. but to help mm-hmm. people do a self-guided journey. Mm-hmm. But and also just leave them, like shove them off you and on your own now. And also made sure that people understood that if they're dependent, that, that, that actually it's right to go and get help and that we will still be here to support you while you also go to other places. And there are our members who we've encouraged to go to their their local services yeah. who still stay with us yeah. and are part of the community yeah. but are also getting the face-to-face support that, that they, they need. actually need yeah because you know it's more dangerous than any other drug and that's that's the bottom line and we don't think that we and don't because we yeah. don't hear that message in fact what we hear is wine is good for your heart yeah, yeah. it makes you a good mum oh. although that i think is being dismantled the wine there's a big backlash against the yeah. wine mum culture in the u.s i'm curious you said something about you think there's a different um that the word alcoholic carries different connotations in the US and the UK. Can you yeah. unpack that a little bit? Well, I think in America, it's quite people are quite proud to say to people that I'm an alcoholic, which is why I don't drink. Right. And um, that's celebrated. Um, like also, there's a kind of a degree of um, good for you. Like, yeah, yeah. you're like... Like, like if you said, I'm an ex-smoker here, would go good for you. Whereas here, alcoholics full of loaded... Quite a lot of loaded other stuff. I mean, it's mm. not um, it's not a medical term. Mm. You can't say here's a line, and on one side of it you're an alcoholic, and one you're not. And we all know that because we were all big drinkers, and we know how fuzzy that line is. Um, the other is in America, being an ex-alcoholic is a protected status. You actually do have some legal protection. I don't quite know what it all is, but I actually had a long conversation with somebody from the states who yeah. runs services in the states, and so there's actually some protection in law for you. Whereas here, it doesn't... I, I have this conversation with Amber Toza quite a lot, who comes and speaks at our events and goes, yeah, I was an alcoholic, and everyone in the, in the room goes... <laughs> Are you word. embarrassed? Right, um, yeah. And I like the word alcohol-free because it fits into a current narrative of being sugar-free and wheat-free, and it suggests a positive lifestyle choice mm. and something that you've mm. chosen. I quite like hangover-free as well. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> but I also like sober-curious because... Um, you know, I, um, in the late 90s, um, early 2000s, was working for Stonewall and doing LGBT campaigning. Mm. And, you know, that that um, gay curious is... Bi curious. Um, bi curious is... We're a bi-run company as well, which is really amusing. <laughs> um, uh, bi curious is there. And also, I talk about the fact that Club Soda is a movement because as well as people changing their drinking, we have venues who um, have better ranges of drinks in our membership. We have drinks um, companies in our membership. We have people who have never really drunk before because we're all allies in the same journey mm. and of course in the in in the queer community we all have allies um and we and there's a lot of um, um respect and room made for different identities yeah. and fluidity in between yeah. those identities and whilst well. we don't have a huge number of muslim members i do meet muslims who who like what we're doing mm. to make our social spaces more welcoming to everybody mm-hmm. because at, at some point that 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 we intersect with their need mm-hmm, as well mm-hmm, and absolutely. so that that makes me it's happy. very inclusive i like sober curious because i think it's very inclusive. Yeah. and it came from that thinking of like what other area of life do we actually allow for this fluidity or is it kind of recognized yeah. that people might 
dip in and out and want to experiment and I thought about sexuality <laughs> and it's a really important term as well because what I know from Club Soda is people don't come with very rigid goals it's not as clear as cut down stop for a bit quit which is what I always had in our mm. strap line mm. in fact people have got lots of very squidgy mm-hmm. goals around mm-hmm. it and changing your drinking isn't linear mm. and so and, and and this is something that I, I battle with quite a lot of time in club soda because those that have gone alcohol free are very proud of counting time yeah and if somebody's had a drink in their community in in that people go oh you reset back to day one I'm like no whatever no. if you had two drinks and you weren't legless and fell over and had a massive relapse and and that drink made you think a little bit about your relationship then to me it doesn't really matter but for some people that then matters quite a lot yeah I'm, but then I'm a liberal and so I, I believe, you know, I accidentally drank a whole box of kombucha that happened to be 1.7%, which meant that year I drank more than you see. The say. kombucha thing is quite annoying, actually, wow. because actually traditional kombucha has more, like, around 3% yeah. or 2.5% or yeah. something, and that's not something that's widely spoken well, of. Well, there's a kombucha <laughs> that just come on the market where it's 1.2% and it's got nothing on the label apart right. from really tiny labels at the back, and I've... And they're trading stuff anyway, so that, mm. that's how I can get bored about labelling as well. But um, to me, I don't consider that that's me breaking my sobriety. It explains why I was really looking forward to a second bottle in the evening, though. <laughs> and so, um, and why I got through that box quite quickly. See, I've had a different situation. I've accidentally drunk alcohol and actually only realised I was drinking it when I started feeling really shit and wanted to leave and go home. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, without any actual expectation, like emotional kind of expectation about how that drink's going to make me feel. It's so interesting to, to notice that the actual physical effect on my body is making me sleepy, making me a bit grumpy and making me want to go home. Yeah. Which is the opposite of what I used to use alcohol for. It's just fascinating. Yeah. And I, if something has got alcohol in it, I can feel it in my stomach. Mm. Um, I feel if, it almost like a heaviness on my and, chest. And my heat and, and, the, and my core temperature goes up. I mm. drank half a can of 1.9% beer in um, in a foreign country. And literally, my face flushed really immediately and I could feel it in my stomach. Mm. I want to talk more about um, the origin story of uh, Club Soda and, and your thoughts around this um, community-building aspect, which I think yeah. is so important. But you touched on something earlier that I want to explain a little bit or dive into for my US listeners in particular. You mentioned Ladette culture. Yes. They didn't have Ladettes in the US, which I think is really interesting. But to, for anybody who's listening, I do write about this in my book. The Ladettes were a kind of breed... It was... It was billed as a sort of feminist movement of the early to mid-1990s. And it was about women kind of like being as outrageous and as ballsy and as outspoken as men, I guess. Yeah, I think we felt we were the first generation that was now making choices where working-class girls like me could go to university and stuff like that. And and you you would be happy holding a pint. No half pints. No. <laughs> No, no Absolute. half pints. Swigging no. from a bottle of Jack That's Daniels. That's what your mum would do, yeah. If necessary. Yeah. But a large part of it was drinking like men drank. And yeah, it was absolutely. really billed as equality, as you mentioned. Yeah. I'd wonder, looking back, what are your thoughts on that movement and the message that we... Because, you know, 40-something... It's no coincidence, I think, that 40-something British women are the biggest binge drinkers in the world. No, well, it... With com- the people that came of age. But it also combines with a, a number of other things mm. I think happened at the same time. Mm. One um, was the, um, the fact that it was no longer okay for men to go out in the evening to the pub and women to stay at home looking after the children so suddenly you had a co-parenting situation where people would would then sit at home and drink in front of the tv 
It also coincided with wine becoming cheaper. So we moved from being a beer country to a wine country. We're now moving away again. Younger people aren't drinking wine. Mm. I think it's because they've been put to bed by lots of parents who smell of Chardonnay. Right. Um, and and so we, we not only had um, access to cheap alcohol, were more likely to socialise at home um, and co-parent in that way. And also we, we felt that equality was, you know, you know, mm. if you were in the law profession, you would go and drink as hard as the men after mm. work, mm. and so on, to prove that you you could you could hack the pace in whatever industry that you were in, mm. Mm. that you had the stamina, that you had the the machismo, I guess. Yeah, and you were yeah. going to, and you were not going to be left out. We were yeah. going to be there. Yeah. And so you're right. I don't think it's an accident that we're, that, that we're all now going. Oh no, this is no good. We can't we can't do this. I'm also not sure if there is a a very particular thing. You know, because women's bodies, um, you know, do metabolise alcohol slightly differently because we tend to be smaller. And um, and alcohol... And this is the other thing that I talk to people about, which is that, yes, we all know about hangovers, but hangovers are only part of the story about um, drinking. If you don't feel hangovers, then you're very lucky or you've got used to feeling that crap all of the time. But ultimately, the impact of alcohol on you is cumulative, and the biggest impact is on your brain. It completely rewires your brain. It's why the government had to, when they did wrote their psychoactive substances bill, had to write a special clause to write out alcohol from that bill and caffeine and stuff, but definitely alcohol because alcohol is the most psychoactive substance that we have. Wow. And so it changes your your neural pathways. And I noticed it wasn't until year three mm. that I felt like in our flat is some wine um, and I was angry with UC one evening and decided that oh god you know I'm really angry and I thought I should drink out of anger and and my brain went oh no I can't be bothered to get the steps to go and get that wine out so that was the first time I realised that you know my, my natural first response wasn't alcohol it wasn't really there um, and and I felt like that was a good sign that my brain was beginning to rewire. I had um, a similar incident when I was I was like I was on a flight. I'd but I was doing some workshops, like leading some workshops at this festival in Croatia, and I was getting a flight, you know, from I'd flown to, the, to London a couple of days here, and then I was on a flight from London to Croatia. And it wasn't until you know the flight had taken off midway through the flight they started wheeling the trolley down. Yeah. That I remember that I remembered you could get alcohol on flights. Like for some, I hadn't even been yeah. think, hadn't even thought about it. Hadn't even crossed my mind. Whereas in the past, I'd have been thinking, "Am I going to have a drink on the plane? Will I have two? Will that be really annoying? Like, well, how will that make me yeah. feel?" It just hadn't crossed my mind. So for me, it was a similar turning point. It's like yeah. something's changed. Like some, like you say, some neuro, neural pathway yeah. has closed or been rerouted. Or and I think as women, we're likely to use alcohol in a very different way. We we use it as a coping mechanism. And so we often drink more because of emotion. Mm. And, and that then um, uh, changes our neural pathways. And so when women talk a lot more about mm. n- not having an off switch, mm. um, that means we've actually got a big problem with alcohol. And I had no off. By the time I had got to my worst, I had no off switch. And an off switch sounds like a, a, a thing that you can then switch back the other way. But I do not believe my off switch is broken, is fixable. Mm. I, I believe it's completely cha- alcohol's completely changed my brain, and that bit won't disappear. Um, uh, but women often talk about that not being able to stop, not drinking every day, but not being able to stop when, when they do. do. Yeah. And and that happens a lot more as well. And I wonder if that's because we were drinking 
far more than we ever wanted to on occasions when we were being trying to keep up with the boys interesting yeah and you know and for our brains that's that's become slightly um more problematic yeah it's um, very interesting because there's yeah what you say about how those brain changes occur more rapidly and become more deeply ingrained when there's an emotional component yeah and i was speaking to a friend of mine the other day who's had a really easy well I say really easy because it's never really easy in our society but a relatively easy time like quitting alcohol she's just kind of she hasn't really missed it yeah um and I was and she was like you know and it was probably like that for you and I'm like no it wasn't actually it was it was it took a lot of effort for me to rewire my brain and we identified that she had mainly been using alcohol as a way to keep other people happy and to kind of fit in and I had mainly been using it to feel a different way i.e. to feel relaxed to feel happy when I was feeling anxious to change my emotional state whereas yeah. hers had been more about just keeping up appearances so hers is probably just relief oh phew I'm not going to do that anymore well exactly it totally <laughs> whereas was whereas yours is oh yes. no now I have to navigate this whole now social network to, well no it's mine was more like now I have to work out how to relax without yeah. that that's really really hard in a yeah. work that in a culture that also enables workaholism yeah. in fact lords and appraises workaholism yeah. it's really difficult so I, my main focus has been like finding other ways to relax and, and, and there's no other way that will make you relax as quickly as alcohol does right particularly once you've been drinking a lot because you relax the minute you open the bottle let alone before you, you even drink it, it exactly so. but hey well going to sleep that's a great way to relax yeah <laughs> do you do you still have drinking dreams no, I've never had drinking dreams. I do. Never I've had, had drinking, drinking dreams. dreams. Sometimes I now drink that I'm getting certain club soda members drunk. Oh, you dream that you're getting them drunk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's that about? My brain is just That's mental. Very I interesting. Have drinking dreams. No. I sometimes have had drug dreams. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. They're usually quite fun. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't do quite as many drugs because there was too much alcohol available. So, right. But, yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned I have some Sober Curious events coming up, all of which you can sign up for at rubywarrington.com forward slash events. The first is a live recording of this podcast on October 24th, 2019 at Getaway Bar in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I'll be talking to amazing Tawny Lara, creator of Sobriety Party and Readings on Recovery, all about sober sex which is definitely an area people have a lot of questions about when they make the decision to quit. Tawny is a regular contributor to Playboy magazine and also came out as bi after she got sober. So we'll be hearing all about that and answering audience questions about how to navigate sex and dating as a non-drinker. Next up, I'm heading to Denver, Colorado, where I'll be hosting a Sober Curious Salon at Conscious Community Space Archipelago on November 7th, 2019. The following night, November 8th, we'll be looking at the astrology of addiction and what the stars have in store for 2020 at members co-working spot Charlie Co. As I mentioned, my season two sponsors Groovy will also be supplying delicious non-alcoholic refreshments at both of those Denver, Colorado events. To reserve your spot at any of these happenings and join the Sober Curious Convo with me in person, go to my personal website, which is rubywarrington.com forward slash events. Now back to Laura. So let's talk a bit more about, so you've had this kind of, you know, you've had your own sober awakening. You're thinking this is great. More people, what led to you thinking about creating Club Soda? So I'd had the idea the minute I walked out of that workshop with stomping my feet in anger. Oh, right, yeah, this is Um, is not enough. Yeah, but that was in 2012. Mm. And then um, 
I was um, I had moved jobs by that point in time and was running a bank switching campaign called Move Your Money, which was getting people to move to more ethical banking. I knew that job wouldn't be around a long time, but it had allowed me to escape the terrible place that I'd been working. And I'd started dating again. So I had um, been going on some exciting dates, had a great, you know, brilliant summer of all pink fluffy clouds. Um, And then what happened was a programme came up for um, people who were coming out of um, local government or the voluntary sector to look at creating their own businesses. And I had never really thought about creating my own business. I had had this idea, but the thought of creating a business on your own is actually quite scary. And I didn't think I had the capability to do it. I'm very good at, you know, talking, but there's lots of practicalities with businesses. Mm. But I decided to apply for that programme, which had a small business loan with it. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I did. I went on the programme. I had a, we got a small business loan and I learned about lean startup and all of that sort of stuff, which Mm. was really helpful and also gave me the space to begin to think about what I wanted to create. Mm. And if I look back at the presentations I did at that time, you know, we're not far off. What I wanted to do was to create a business like a grown up. Um, and uh, but I've created a movement because actually I've, what I've done is defaulted to my natural state of being and the one thing I've learned is is it's okay to be who you are and to you know to pull on your strengths and not you only know, is it okay actually you can achieve so, so much, much more, more yeah without <laughs> fighting against yeah. who you are and you know very early on when our members started to write complaint letters to the supermarket that the nanny state was too high on the shelves for them to reach that made me happy and so let's just do some more of that hey (laughs) um and I started to you know draft up complaint letters to places where you know how dare the sommelier walk away from me if I say I'm not drinking I want to know what the alternative is and all of that sort of stuff and so in some ways that made sense to me but also it's it's where I it's who I am which is that it's not good enough just to make it better for you Mm. I want to make it better for the people that come along after me Mm -hmm. and Club Soda is about that in terms of people supporting each other you know it's the people I'm always very struck by one of our members who said you know really high powered job um um in in a really one of the biggest companies in the UK and she said I came on to Club Soda to Um, think about moderating I never even thought that I would give up drinking and then somebody who joined at the same time as me celebrated six months alcohol free and her her world had got better not worse and Mm. I suddenly got jealous (laughs) and so I wanted a bit of that too and so I went alcohol free that day and so that positive role modeling that you know by sharing our stories we make it possible for other people to follow the same path and by sharing skills around moderating your drinking you you give people the tools to work out what's right for them Mm. that to me is incredibly powerful and Mm. and that's about people saying something out loud even if it is in a private space yes absolutely and that's what they're the community aspect like you you touched on this in terms of AA like I know people who've got sober curious and that's been a stepping stone to them going to AA and then the community aspect that they found is actually the most useful thing they weren't they weren't necessarily daily drinkers who were like no getting constant DUIs and winding up in ER their drinking wasn't at that level and yet AA has been a really great tool because of the community yeah and when I went to the AA meetings um after I gave up drinking when I was thinking about setting up club soda it was the community aspect that I liked and actually since then we've done a lot of work on um, so we use um, University College London's behaviour change taxonomy they have they've listed the 96 different behaviour change techniques that exist in society amazing those of them are about you know fining people and you know charging people and all sorts of other things but we isolated the ones that we thought were the club soda things Mm. Um, and then a couple of years ago we did a project 
uh, with Nesta, which is an innovation charity, which we then had a falling out with, but that's another story <laughs> around their alcohol-free <laughs> drinks. Um, but um, we did their program around self-efficacy to work out what makes for good self-efficacy. And so we're now very clear that we use behaviour change techniques that promote self-efficacy. And the most important of all of those, it's like the kale of behaviour change, is meeting other people. Meeting online, pretty good. But when we do our lunches and people meet in real life, then that's even better. It creates this whole level of accountability and desire to tell those people again that things have gone really well. Mm. It, it, it makes such a huge difference. Mm. And so um, it's why I feel that... Um, why community is so important, why joining a community is important, but also Club Soda may not be the right community for you. You might not find the people are right, mm. um, but you may find that something else works for you, and that's absolutely fine. You can also be, as I would say, you don't have to be monogamous about these things. You can join lots of different communities. In fact, the more you surround yourself with support, the more likely you are to be able to get this, the tools that you need yeah. by learning from other people. Yeah. And then, you know, all sorts of things happen and you you might then decide to drop some groups and join others and you may decide, you know, I have people who write to apologise to say they're leaving the group now because they feel that they've, that got, what they they've got what they needed. Whereas some members are still with us four and a half years on because they really enjoy helping people back the other way. And all of that's fine as well. Yeah, yeah. So. I often say as well, it's like you almost can't consume too much of this message in light of how much of the alternative yeah. messages shoved down our throats with multi-million dollar marketing campaigns on a daily yeah. basis. In a world that is constantly trying to get you drunk, it is a real act of rebellion to go alcohol-free. Massive. And, um, and uh, if it and makes... requires consistent um, confirmation and validation that yeah. that's okay. Yeah, and... I, I, and to give some context to that, I decided that sometimes it's very easy to forget what it's like on the first days of being alcohol-free. Yeah. So I decided to use all the things that we tell our members to lose weight last year and get mm. fixed. I'd put weight back on. Mm -hmm. And it worked. You know, mm -hmm. By doing something, something happens. Ah, shock horror. <laughs> um, and by absolutely making it my priority and even putting club sodas a slight second, mm -hmm. only mm -hmm. just a slight second, mm -hmm. mind you, mm -hmm. uh, finding some buddies who mm. were going to do running and stuff with me, mm. uh, writing down all of my calories, because obviously you can only moderate food. You can't go food free, yes, although right. some people have. But, you some know, people do. It's not advisable. I'm not. I can't no. do that. And, <laughs> and by recognising that when I slipped up, the quicker I picked up again, the more likely I was to succeed. It all worked. So, you know, these these are good behaviour change techniques. That's great. I'm work. really happy you shared that because I sometimes feel the same. I'm like, gosh, yeah, it's been a while now. I'm, so I'm finding it harder and harder to relate to people who are coming to me who are very new to this sober curious thing. Like, how yeah. did it actually feel? I've been thinking, maybe I should just go and get really drunk. Like, yeah, and, no, and you know what? My, my of what that hangover feels like. Or like, maybe I should drink for a month just to kind of like almost... But no, I don't. Think no, that's, no, and that's I've put some weight really back on, me. and now I'm struggling to get back on. <laughs> and I've told everyone then that 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 biscuits are absolutely banned, and I've been working out my trigger foods, and I've been reading um, uh, the Kindness Method by Sharu because um, I think she's mm. amazing. And if you ever want to interview somebody else, just. That sounds um, lovely. The just, kindness method sounds just like what the world needs, actually. And also she knows her stuff around um, changing drinking and alcohol. Yeah, She's worked cool. in the sector for a long time. Mm. Um, so, But she also lost loads of weight, and so I, I, I talked to her about it. And so I surround myself with the information I need, and, and getting back on track is, is a bit of an effort because I've had an injury to, that stopped mm. my running. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, um, I know that only by doing something will something happen. Right, exactly. So tell me a bit about, you know, I often, lots of the messages that I get are 
this is really resonating. Love the book. Really, I'm really curious. I want to start a group in, you know, insert X town here. How do I go about starting a community? What do I do? And I'm figuring you must get similar messages yes. all the time. And I'd love to hear what you tell people and like what your kind of advice is for anyone who's wanting to start their own sober or sober curious yes. community and, and um, start doing yeah. this work together. Very early on, people wanted a social. And so I did silly things like going to Edinburgh for just an evening to have a drink and then nobody would turn up so um, so we have developed a little system over time and so um, after doing quite a lot of those going to places and only one person turning up I realised that you actually need you actually need quite a lot of volume mm. um, in order to get even just five people to turn up to mm. a meet up mm. and people expect you to be you know as available and as busy as AA is and you have to remember that that's taken 70 years to develop that system and we're doing something different we deliberately do our socials in licensed premises so that people can practice a new behavior in a familiar setting not only going to the bar and ordering something that isn't alcohol mm. but meeting strangers for the first time mm. without a drink or just being in that environment yeah. and noticing the triggers and working with sitting with them and working with them I yes guess. yeah so what we do now is a couple of things we've got a whole set of guidance which is you know decide when works for you and also um, find a venue near you that's got a good range of alcohol free drinks mm. and then start talking about it on the community um, we still use Facebook at the moment which mm. means knowing where people are is impossible mm. or near to impossible mm. it takes a lot of work so um, the more active you are on the community the more you talk about wanting a social and people to come the more likely people are and that's because there are members that will travel mm. and so if you say like we do, we do one in Liverpool and there was 35 people there and that's because there was a core group of members who said right we're, get, we're all going to go to Liverpool that weekend and because they right. said they were going that dragged more people yeah, so you right. need to build some momentum yeah. which is a bit difficult for some people yeah but I also remind everyone that you only need two people for social it's true and that's and it, and that's okay as well um so they find the venue and the uh, the date and then we actually now have a member of staff who helps us organise it before that was me mm. up until like only about three months ago mm. and then I would get it up on um, our website on our Facebook page on our Facebook group because people don't want to comment on a public page about going to the events you have to do another one in the group um, we would put it in our meetup if we have if it was a London one because we have a meetup and we'd put it on our email and then I actually would physically go through and see if I could find people from different areas to tag them in an event right yeah. which is quite a lot so it's why you need work, yeah. to begin to to build some of that yourself and so we now have somebody who helps do that but there are other important things about it which is we want to teach people how to be good hosts because they are you know you're anxious yourself everyone else comes a little bit anxious sometimes people just want to meet outside um there are often people who don't turn up um, which is what partly why we also charge an admin fee because it's more likely people have if they've booked a ticket mm. are going to turn up mm -hmm. people don't turn up if they tick attending no, they on don't. a Facebook event just to let you know this <laughs> it's all lovely but we all do it in the heat of the moment um, so you know it's things like you know how do we welcome people all of our organisers get a little pack which has got a little sign in it a badge um, I'm on call during the day so that if people mm. have any problems that they can call me and and so we've got some systems in place mm. to promote it mm. so that people do turn up mm -hmm. and to make sure that for me there's an important element around safeguarding and and people feeling like they're comfortable you can't make any place perfectly safe but I want to know that if um 
if somebody turns up who acts inappropriately, just like if they turned up and were inappropriate in the group, that we have a way of dealing with that. Yeah. Um, and that the event's open to everybody. So yes, do invite your friends in the group along, but don't only invite your friends. Make sure that everybody feels welcome because you will get a lot from welcoming somebody new into to meeting you in person. They will get a lot from hearing your story. So we want to have some standards around. Yeah, it. absolutely. But it's I'm, like you've got some really good, yeah. a really good process in place now. Yeah, but equally, you know, women who don't drink, which is another group in the UK, um, I advertise the events in there because mm-hmm. um, uh, the woman who organises that doesn't want to organise events. But yeah, I'm happy for everyone to come to a club soda event, even if you also go to a one year, ne- mm. one year no beer event at mm. another time mm. and all those sort of things. Mm. To me, it really doesn't matter, and I'm supporting the sober millennials in setting up their events because. I'm not a millennial, right? And so <laughs> I'm not going to even try and pretend. I'd rather support other people to do that and teach them what we've learned from setting up socials and help them connect with venues that we already know about. Yeah. And I'm happy just to keep to doing members' lunches, which feel very nice in the fact that they are a lunchtime, which means people can travel to get to somewhere and then go home at the end of the day and maybe pootle around some shops in a city that they don't normally go to, and that works really well. And then in it, we'll throw in you know, doing the occasional, you know, 10K runs, the next one's after 10K run, and we're doing some, we're going to do the, the Capital Ring in London this year, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. We, we do a whole loop of London over a course of a year. So, um, but they also, but that also shows that they don't have to be complicated. Yeah. You don't have to run a cocktail party, unless that's your your burning desire, then I'm happy for you to organise a cocktail party. In Brighton, they've done some evening socials, and that's fine as well. We're happy to roll with that, but ultimately, it doesn't, you know, have to be any more than creating, you know, just the space for people to get together. Exactly. That is literally what it is, isn't it? It's like yeah. a, a gathering can really look like anything, you know, but if yeah. you're coming with the shared intention. I like the idea that you're having them in licensed venues because I think for a lot of people, that, that would almost immediately, for anyone who is entirely abstinent, for example, they're almost like no-go zones. And I think what you're saying is part of kind of your mission maybe is to kind of um erase or blur that line between what's allowed and what's not in terms yeah. of like who we hang out with and, and where we hang out and actually kind of the more open we can be about like hey alcohol exists in the world the more comfortable we are being around alcohol the more the stronger we're going to be in our sobriety or our sober curiosity yeah. or whatever and, and there are several be. bits of learning behind that one is mm. it um it is a behavior change techniques which is you know mm. still doing a new behavior in in the same setting yeah um but the other is is i was really struck by a couple of things one is that um um I spoke to one of our members who had been through a 12-step program and she'd been through a 12-step program and in rehab three times. And it wasn't until the last time when she realised she couldn't just cocoon herself away at home. She had to learn to be out in the world again because the only times she relapsed were when she felt lonely Mm. because she wasn't going out because she felt frightened. And I thought, well, actually, I don't want people to feel frightened of these spaces. I want you to feel triumphant, like you have conquered them, like you've suddenly developed a superpower. Oh, you and, have every right to be and you there, have every right, right to, be, to be, there. be there as anybody else. Yeah. And actually, pubs and bars will support you in doing that. The more confident you are in doing that, and and so let's let's get you in there. And I see it as a we're building a new program based on some research that the Wellcome Trust have paid for, and we're putting missions into this program as well as um, trigger packs. <coughs> And one of the missions is, is go out, go to a pub and order a drink, an alcohol-free drink over the bar. See how that feels. 
yeah get it down yeah realize that the sky won't fall in yeah and then no one's going to laugh at you the bartender's not going to roll their eyes no and I think, you know, a big part of your mission. And if they are, tell me and I'll tweet and shame them. Yeah, so, exactly. Frankly. Exactly, because quite frankly, that just should not it's be not allowed. It's not acceptable. It's exactly. called hospitality for a reason. <laughs> and a big part of your mission is about campaigning for more alcohol-free options in these spaces, to, to which, and you know, you, we touched on it earlier, you run something called the Mindful Drinking Festival yeah. here in the UK, which happens twice a year, I think, is it? Yeah, and we did one in Glasgow. That was right. great fun. And I want to do more elsewhere, but it's just about money at the minute. And this is about creating awareness... Well, the, the, for other for alcohol-free drinks because there are so yeah. many coming onto the market, and now. also because our behaviour is very different around alcohol-free, and we would have bought any drink, um, regardless of brand, even if we thought we were the most sophisticated drinker when we were drinking, because we knew true. what it would do. Mm. It would get us drunk. Mm. People won't spend one pound fifty on an alcohol-free drink unless they know they definitely like it. Mm-hmm. This is where our duplicity of behaviour is hilarious. <laughs> And so people go to me, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to buy that alcohol-free beer because I'm not sure if I'm going to like it. And I go, it's £2 a can. If you don't like it, it's not the end of the world, you know. Yeah. But no people go, oh, well. And so I, that's why I wanted to do the festival because I wanted to say, look, come and try it, guys. It's why it's not a ticketed event because yeah. I want people to feel free to come and try before they buy and realise that it's all okay. Mm. And then the pub guide or the venue guide that we have, clubsodeguide.com, mm. that's now got 850 alcohol-free, low and no alcohol drinks on it. So it has got um, beers under 3% mm. on it. Mm. Um, but that has got a date, the, and we're constantly updating it every week, 850 alcohol-free drinks on it. And you can begin to work out where to buy them now. So you can begin to navigate by the types of drink that you like and, and think through those. And, and start to seek out pubs and venues that have mm. got um, the right drink. And then in mm. return, we go and speak to pubs, and I say to them, look, you know, it's no good that you just, when I come and ask for an alcohol-free drink, you just top, tap the top of that Coke machine and then squirt me out um, some Coke from the hose as if I'm 12 and about to go out and wait in the car for my dad. Um, no one wants a drink when they go out for the evening that you can get as part of a £3 meal deal in a petrol station. They don't. No, no. They want, they want something to feel else. More special. They and, want it to feel like an occasion. And they maybe want to have more than one of them, and you can't yes. have more than one coke. Yes, you can. And, um, you rapidly feel. I went to a music festival recently, and the only alcohol-free drinks on offer were still water. Obviously, I'm a fan of club soda, so yeah. there was still water, and there was Red Bull. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm either going to like just have really bland still water for like eight hours at this festival, I'm going to drink like five Red Bulls and feel probably worse than if I'd and, been and, drinking and, alcohol. And never sleep! And never sleep again! <laughs> That's my secret advice. It was very annoyed. It is is your secret advice. Well, I I had to give... After giving up drinking, (laughs) I hit the Red Bull quite hard Mm -hmm. to get, like, buzzy feelings. Mm. And then I realised I had to give up the Red Bull, which I did really well. And now every now and again, I sneak sneak one in. And and UC keeps an eye on my consumption of Red Bull. (laughs) I find myself making excuses to get a Red Bull like I used to for alcohol. Well, you know... You know, it's going to be a late evening and, you know, I need to stay Have you tried that Club that? Mate? I'm going to Berlin yeah, next week. I, I like know Club you've been Mate. out there. And that's yeah. a good... So Club Mate is a sparkling Mate drink that's in all of the nightclubs there. Yeah, Mate's got a good high buzz. Caffeine. I mean, I, yeah. I have developed a very expensive tea addiction. I never even mm. used to drink tea. So no, I don't understand why I don't feel I can get enough... But I know what it is. It's the sugar and caffeine rush together, I think, on a Red Bull. <laughs> so I have, to, I have to reel it in. And there's something kind of... Red Bull came in around the time of the Ladettes too. There was I know. A slight, there's that slight Ladette bravado. I never drank Bull. it with alcohol though. Oh, you didn't? I was always very pure about it. I remember it was... a drink called the Shambles. Yeah. Vodka, Red Bull, and champagne. Yeah. You can I imagine. Did... No, that, that, that wasn't for me. That was, that was for <laughs> other girls. 
Who knew what champagne was? <laughs> and this is where me and Ruby are poles apart. Absolutely. She's West London, I'm East points, London. Though, I've never been lived in West London. Yeah, I was born in North London, oh, then right I lived then. in Brixton for ten I years. Let you off. Brixton for ten years. Pints, the George Fourth pub. I was a pints girl, but again, yeah. it was kind of like it was a, it was a ladette thing of like. I'm and then you drink the it too quickly boys. because it's well, heavy holding a pint. I've always been a thirsty person. Like yeah. I'm generally really dehydrated, so I needed something I could drink. I a gave lot up. Of. I gave up drinking cider because um, I felt I was drinking it too quickly and just drank wine as quickly. So I would have been better <laughs> off staying on the cider, quite frankly. Oh so. dear! Oh dear! <laughs> hey ho! Um, so I'm, I'm curious as well. I just want to touch on this. There have been. There've been there are little bits and pieces of pushback against this sort of like yeah. burgeoning. Tre- people are very un. Not a lot of people are liking the idea of this being a trend, and you know the fact that people are talking about this non-drinking trend or this sober curious trend. Yeah, normally fifty-five-year-old white male journalists. So let's just ignore them. <laughs> Because they just can't believe younger people don't want to drink as much well, as they no, there's do. Well, there's, there are people who are kind of more in the recovery community who are like, this is actually disrespecting the grit and the dedication and the pain that it takes to kind of like get sober from a hardcore alcohol addiction. And part of the pushback as well, I've seen some comments that have been around kind of like, and now there's a whole industry springing up around it to capitalise on this. And it's more about more consumption and creating more products can't we just like be and be content with what we've got and I'm with you in the kind of well it's going to make it so much easier for more people to not drink in the first place if we have a really great range of drinks that aren't alcoholic and that also aren't full of sugar and yeah and and we um it's this idea that one size fits all that doesn't really you know doesn't really work and if you can only come from a um a heavy recovery stance that 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 talks about, um, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, maybe, and, and I do worry that sometimes I might trivialise the amount I drank and um, and how hard it is to, to deal with that. And we try not to, actually, in Club Soda, and we're very good at telling people that, you know, you will, it doesn't matter how much you drank, you will feel some um, withdrawal symptoms and all those sort of things. Mm. But if you can if for a lot of people a change in language and the change in the way we talk about it gives them permission to change their drinking and this is where I'm it's all about for me you'll get permission to do something different mm. and that's really important mm. when I first um, set up Club Soda I wrote a book called Rebel Non-Drinking because I'm very up I used to take my own drinks into pubs and all that sort of stuff so to me it's a really rebellious act <laughs> and then one of my co-founders said to me you know that most people don't want to be rebellious most people just want to fit that's in that's why a lot of people drink in and, the first place yeah and it really struck a chord with me because of course I can go around being very bravado and you know this is great I love talking about it because I feel very edgy but I'm very privileged to have been somebody who has been you know very good at sticking my neck out for a long time Mm. what I can do as the person that I am is create the uh, create the permission for everyone else to do what they want to do and they don't have to use the word rebel they can just quietly say today I'm alcohol free and I have brought my own drink with me and this is what I'm doing Mm. and if I give them permission to do that then that's absolutely good enough. And if you're telling us that that that, that experience is only valid if you've been at one end of the spectrum and have drawn yourself back from the claws of death, then that's really disingenuous because we all, of course, have our own thing. It does, if we go back to gay campaigning, it's... um, when I worked at Stonewall at the time, I wasn't allowed to tell anyone I was bisexual because that would have um, ruined the whole campaign around being born that way and it would have diluted the message, Hmm. which, of course, is ridiculous. 
you know, we it's are all who we message. are. Yes, exactly. Um, and equally, however anyone chooses to describe themselves while they're drinking, and then choose to, how they choose to describe their drinking after they've given up drinking, and how they choose to describe themselves now, if that all fits in with their identity and gives them the strength that they need, then that's absolutely fine by me. And I will not disrespect for you if you use the word alcoholic and that works for you, and that you talk about being in recovery. And we're very good at trying to stop those fights that occasionally yeah. erupt. Yeah. Equally, um, please don't tell people that the only way is to surrender themselves to a higher power and that they're all deluding themselves if they don't. Because actually, you have to just recognise that we're all different people and different language works in different ways for different people. Mm. If not, there would only be one diet club, there'd only be one way of education, there'd only be, you know, all of, there'd only be one, one political, political party. party. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, and, and we, should, we should see all of that difference as being good for everybody because it gives people permission. And, and you don't need to troll people on social media. You just don't. And equally, um, we, we have this guy who trolls us who keeps calling us an abstinence organisation and having a go at us. And I've met him in person now because he works in the licensing field. Mm. And um, he um, on social media, he's clearly far more vocal than he is in real life because <laughs> um, he didn't want to say anything to us when we said, oh, we know you. And he went, rather sheepishly. So yeah. we said, well, actually, you know, Camera, the Real Ale Society... Um, supports what we do. The British Beer and Pub Association supports what we do. And I could say, oh, that's awful, that's the terrible people who cause this problem um, now now seeing the light of day. But quite frankly, if it means that I can talk to camera members who are now realising that they, whilst they love real ale, they now need to do something about their love for real ale, then that's fine by me. And, and you know, I'm not going to pretend that alcohol doesn't exist in the same way as other drugs you yeah, know absolutely. I mean it's about recognising that, that you know if, if this is about you know and the big picture is a part of, it's about a raising of awareness and a raising of consciousness and a, a recognising of individuals and differences and all of these things you know and I think that's about acknowledging that even the people who might be perceived as being on the other side or on the bad side are still hu- are human beings working it out as well yeah and it's, it's interesting to see because obviously without a doubt advertising on of everything um, is is quite you know because it's all designed to make us spend money on stuff we don't need and by, then, by exploiting our yeah. weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and 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 then when you've got things like alcohol and cigarettes and vaping and all that sort of stuff they're they're asking us to use things that are bad for our health which are known to be addictive yeah and, that, that's and, their and so that's model. really difficult <laughs> yeah but um and there's lots of regulation in place which is actually why the phrase mindful drinking came back because I wanted to call our guide a guide for healthier drinkers mm. but because it talks we talk about low as well as no alcohol. Mm. I didn't want to get anybody in trouble for using the word healthier because you can't make health claims yeah, out right. alcohol. So mindful yeah. drinking came through that. Mm. Um, but what's most important is, is you can have as much regulation as you like, but it's people power that will make the difference in how they change the way they market. And so the reason why birthday cards are beginning to change is because people are calling them out on it. Um, and if, if companies think that that's no longer the best way to market that product then they will change that. In the same way as I like to have conversations with Twinings about the fact that they've turned making tea into an unmeditative practice when actually it's a very meditative practice. 
Mm. So surely now's the time to bring all of that mm. back. Mm. They mm. can change the way they talk about making tea. And I think um, the alcohol um, industry will start talking about the way that they talk about alcohol differently if we all begin to go, you know what, we're not buying that anymore. We actually know better. We're more yeah. educated now. So yeah. talk to me like a grown-up human being who knows my body and knows what's Yeah, and it's interesting. Every time I speak to pubs, they're willing to stock more stuff. Yeah. Um, but you need to make the economic case, and that's the yeah. same for advertisers. Yes. And, you know, there is only one God in the pub, and that's the till. Yeah. And, um, but they also know that, that if you're drinking tap water, they're not making any money out of you. So what is it they're going to give you instead? So let's let's exercise our power as consumers yeah. um, in a far more exciting way. Absolutely. Um, to finish up, I'd love to hear a bit more. You said that after a few months of not drinking, or maybe it was even after a few years, you'll have to re- remind me, you you, came, you remembered what your core values are as a human. Yeah. And you came back to your core values, possibly yeah. the values that led you into politics in the first place. Can you just share a little about what those values are and yes. how, they, how they are coming through in your work with Club Soda? So I've always been a community activist. So I was elected to my community association as secretary when I was 14. And I um, was very lucky that um, during my youth there was something called the Charter Festival of Women in Music, which was an international festival of women in music. And I sat on the organising committee of that. And I, raised, I ran the environment committee at school from 12. I actually had my own notice board at school from the age of 12 which had both equalities and environmental issues stuff on it. So um, I, I always wanted to fix things. I mm. always had a sense of, um, of wanting to fix injustices. Mm. Um, and so that's been a very strong core thing about me and being able to engage with people to understand what they were. I don't know everything. I, I listen to people and I hear a problem and I want to go out and, and fix it. I spoke at my first council meeting when I was 14 to get a skateboard ramp. I don't skateboard. I've never skateboarded, but I was the gobbiest person in school. And so all the skateboarders came to me to ask me to put a motion to council to do it. And so I did it. And so there is some power in in being able to do that, which means that what drives me is speaking to other people about and talking to people and feeling what's wrong and how we might go about changing that. Um, and that's what led me into politics and getting elected at 23 and um, and doing all of those things. And, and what alcohol robbed me was of any was of any energy, any empathy, and any ability to listen to other people. And I thought when I was in the job that I wasn't enjoying, I began to question whether I was a campaigner and an activist, and thought I should really work out what it is that I'm good at, and and try and go and do it. And I had um, a revelation before I gave up drinking, which was um, they were changing the motorcycle parking near where I worked. And I'm a, a motor, I was riding a moped at the time. I got a moped because I thought it would stop me drinking so much, but all it meant was I, I left my moped in different moped bays around London. Um, but um, hey, um, go figure. Um, but my immediate reaction was to set up a petition to that. And I thought, my instinct is an activist. Mm surely maybe that isn't what's wrong and I guess that and cutting my hair were two really big um, things that preceded me changing my drinking which was recognising that actually I am an activist this is my natural instinct this is what I do and um, maybe I just need to to accept a little bit more who I am and stop trying to pretend to be so girly by having a girlier haircut and I've always wanted short hair so I went and got my hair cut and like I say these things don't happen in an order sometimes it's the small changes that you make that give you the confidence to then make the big change 
And so um, they all led to me changing my drinking. And then it was that overwhelming feeling of having my energy back and having those micro interactions every day that made me realize, made me feel like I was 23 again. Mm. That I do have the energy to do this. This is what I do. This is how I am in the world. This is, and I can do that without feeling the huge amount of shame I feel because I'm always hungover and can't do this anymore. Well, yeah, I think, you know, I've often thought about how apathetic alcohol makes people. Oh, yeah. You're either kind of like disengaging in the act of getting drunk or you're disengaged because you don't have the energy yeah. or you're hungover to actually make a change. And it's so interesting, isn't it, how so many of us find alcohol in our teens, which is exactly the age we get our, begin to get our agency as adults. And we begin yeah. to get the power to make a change. We begin to get a voice that can actually make an impact in the world. And I sometimes think that that's so daunting almost and there are so we become also very aware of how many systems of oppression there are in place to dull that down that we almost kind of like what's the point yes what is the point what difference could I possibly ever make oh I'll just drink and get all concerned with like who's having sex with who and like I don't know who's most popular and what clothes I'm just gonna wear and you're right because there are often times where people go on the group and they go I wasn't drinking for four days and then a hurricane happened or this shooting has happened and I'm just need to drink Mm. and and of course, you think you're drinking because you, you you have no agency in this terrible thing that's happening in the world, but really you're using that as an excuse to drink. And suddenly, when you realise that, that's the other way around. It's you who's making you drink. It's yeah. not the situation. Exactly. And yes, what? Well, and there was a woman who came on our group who got very upset about birds flying into tall buildings in her city, and she was using that as the excuse to drink. And yes, you can feel powerless. You cannot take down all these tall buildings and save all the birds but but if you really break down to the core of what you, what you've just said you're basically saying that you're drinking because you can't do something because and within a like minute i had found an agent a, a charity that that actually does care about that in her city that she could join so you know stop using those things as an excuse of course that's where it starts you start to use it when you see these dist- you know i remember drinking all the way through 9 11 it was mm. so terrible mm. and thinking oh this is the only way to deal with it of course There's terrible things do. it does help you numb it out of course it does mm. but but look when when it switches mm. and you're drinking because you feel you you're powerless and and actually the only way you can get that power back is to not drink is to not drink yeah and actually it's look not, at it's, and there is always something you can do and in yeah. fact more of us doing those very small seemingly very small inconsequential things will begin to have a real impact in the world and also being able to talk to other people about the things that make you scared in the world makes you feel less alone about those things and you realize that this is a shared sense of helplessness um as we you know close in on all sorts of political issues you are not alone in feeling these ways but being able to sit yourself in a room and talk to other people about them will make you feel better drinking half a bottle of whiskey won't i think that's a perfect place to end (laughs) laura thank you so much for coming to talk to me today in this lovely sunny view over london um it's been really really great to hear the full story to connect with you properly um and i look forward to future collaborations yeah absolutely i love that we ended on that note often getting sober curious begins as something very personal but the more clarity we get as a result of removing the booze and the more our consciousness expands the more it becomes really clear that this is actually about something much bigger that it's about reclaiming our power and really showing up and participating in our world in a whole new way. 
You can search Join Club Soda on Facebook or Instagram to become part of Laura's community. And she also has a book out, How to Be a Mindful Drinker, December 26th this year. That's going to be available in the UK and the US. So look it up and check it out. Thanks again for being here. If you loved this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you listen on iTunes, you can subscribe and leave a five-star review to help other people find this series. This podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com. 